Hello, friends, and welcome to another Robcast. And this one is, we're going to do a series here with our beloved friend of the Robcast, Pete Rollins. Pete, welcome to the back house. It is so good to be back in the back house. (laughs) (laughs) Back in the back house. Um, And we're going to cover all sorts of ground over the next few episodes. But a couple things quickly. This week, um, depending on when you listen to this episode, this week I'm starting the Bible Belt Tour. So I'm doing Norfolk, Virginia, and then Richmond, Virginia, then Charlotte, North Carolina, then Knoxville, Tennessee, then Atlanta, Georgia, then Birmingham, Alabama, and the tour will wrap up in uh, the home of Elvis, Memphis. And um, so those of you listening to the Robcast and want to come out, um, a couple of the cities sold out, but they've moved to bigger venues and... I know Birmingham sold out, but then they've added some standing room only seats and crammed some more people in. So I'm really looking forward to seeing you all. And then secondly, a number of you have asked about the next Communicators two-day events. So here's what we're going to do. The next one is in October, but it's going to be different. You bring whatever you're working on. So all of you writers, speakers people who give messages, talks, sermonizers, whoever it is. I'm going to do an event where you bring, where you have a smaller group, and you bring whatever you're working on, and then I work on your thing with you. Hopefully we get you unstuck, get you going, get all that. So the first dates, it's called the Something to Say Workshop. Those first dates are, uh, it's going to be at the Improv here in Los Angeles. And uh, the first dates are now up on the site. It's a small group, a couple spots. Then... Um, I've been doing these two-day events on communicating, on the art of communicating, um, and I love talking about this, and I've been doing these two-day events for the past five years or so. So I took all of the talks that I've given about communicating, and I condensed them all down to one outline, and then I recorded it like a really, really long talk, and it's uh, seven hours, seven hours and 45 minutes long, and it's now available on my site. So uh, if that is a lot, Kristen Bell is here in the back house. That is a lot of content. This is my very best content on um, communicating. You know I love to talk about this. And um, I'm really, really, really proud of this. Uh, It's really significant to me. And um, so obviously, I was trying to figure out how much to charge for it. And uh, it's so many years of work. It's so many hours of content. And then I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll let you decide. So it's pay what you want, Um, which doesn't mean a dollar, by the way. This is years and years of work boiled down to a little under eight hours of content. But uh, we're going Radiohead style and pay what you want. So there we go. Exciting things happen in the middle of the summer. But... Now, my friends, Pete Rollins is in the back house. They're so exciting to be back. <laughs> okay, so last summer, you and I were in England together doing an event, and you talked about love. Mm-hmm. I don't even think it was the main thing you were talking about. Nope. You touched on it, and then we were eating or walking around or talking, and I was like, that stuff you did, I love. I immediately thought oh my word, the Robcast people would love this. 
Well, and then I gave you my. Should, you should say that you should write a book on this. This is, this, yeah. this is a book. Yeah. And then I gave you the title. Yeah. Because I love titles. Yeah. Because titles are divine, and I was like, you should call it an introduction to love. Yeah. Because that's just a fantastic. Um, but you, so you're gonna do the next three episodes. You're gonna do this, what I would call an introduction to love, but you apparently have a different title. Yes. So I want to call this an introduction to making love. <laughs> But Rob is like, you know what? I'm not sure if people see that in the Robcast. They've never heard about me before. They might think this is X-rated. What did I stumble into? <laughs> yes, what is this? But you might get more listeners. You know your book, your first book, How Not to Speak of God? Yeah. The, the not was in parentheses. Yeah. An introduction to making could be in parentheses. Perfect. Perfect. Because making love used to be a phrase that had nothing to do with sex at all. The term making love meant the art of creating love. And what would happen is two people would go on a date and they would bring a chaperone. And people would think, oh, the role of the chaperone is to stop the two people doing anything on toward. But actually the role of the chaperone was to get the people to start fantasizing about what they could do if the chaperone wasn't there. So the chaperone was literally making love. The chaperone, by creating a distance between the two people, was creating desire. The chaperone sounds like a French word. Where does that word come from? I'm not sure. Probably is a French word. I'm, I don't don't know the uh, the origins. But you know, you think about this in terms of uh, true love weights or conservative Christianity. I love true love weights. It's amazing. The best way to get. Uh, sexuality interesting is to pro prohibit it. So in, in a place like <laughs> LA where sex is, you can have sex anytime you want, there's no prohibition, that makes sex very unsexual, right? Nobody wants to, like if you want your child not to have sex, talk about it all the time. Be a hippie parent and say, oh, tell me what you did and how you touched her or how you touched him. And the child will not want to ever touch anybody ever. If you, you know, the first time I was in Amsterdam, uh -huh. I had heard about the red light district. Oh, yeah. And... I was like, oh, I have to see this. Yeah. So I went to the, have you been to the Amsterdam yeah. Red Light District? Oh, yeah, yeah. And there are these women in the windows, yeah. and it was the least sexy place I've ever been in my life. Exactly, without the prohibition. So the, the gift that the conservative church gives to a place like LA is to prohibit, which makes it more desirous. So I think it's true that people who are involved with True Love Wait end up having more sex than What's people that, like who are What's that, like a aren't. campaign or something? Yeah, it's where people commit to not having sex uh, until they're married. And so that's the perfect way to, you know, have more sex, um, is to create the prohibition. So it's a, it's an interesting gift to to the world. <laughs> um, so th this idea that actually prohibiting something creates it. So in, in back in Ireland, you have a you have a school where the priest is making sure that the the girl and the boy don't get too close to each other, right? At the dance, and they're making sure that you don't touch. People think, oh, the priest and the nun, oh, they're stopping desire. No, no, no. The role of the Catholic Church is to create desire so that actually people get together and they, so they actually create love. So I want this you know, series that we're doing to be a guide to the, the art of making love. And there's three dimensions for me. There's the theological, which I'd love to talk about today. There's the political dimension of making love, which I'd love to do the next day, the next week. And then there is the personal dimension of making love. Okay. By the way, a woman <coughs> just asked me a couple of days ago, "How do I get my fifteen-year-olds to read? Fifteen-year-old to read your books?" Yeah. I keep telling my fifteen-year-old, my fifteen-year-old won't read your books, and I keep trying to get them to read your books, and I was like, "Ban them." Yes, exactly. Prohibit them. 
Exactly. Tell them that you'd never want your 15-year-old, your 15 whatever you do, don't read Rob Bell books. Yeah, that's what we did. That was our youth ministry in Icon. In Icon, we met in a bar, and so you said to anybody under the age of 18, oh, you can't go. That was the perfect way to make them want to go. What are we missing? What is it about? So if you want people to come when they're old enough, <clears throat> don't let them come. Oh, no, you wouldn't want to do that. Oh, no, 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 you're not allowed to do that. Yep, absolutely. So there's a youth ministry tip. Don't well, let Kristen people I, come. Um, I always talk about not being door number two parents, which is, I mean, some things obviously like heroin. Let's yeah. just not do heroin, okay? Yes. So obviously some things you just are like against, but you can give something way more energy than it deserves. Yeah. By, and a door number two, whatever you do, don't go behind door number two. Avoid door number two. We don't even talk about that. In fact, you know what? We're not even going to. And for there are a number of kids or some percentage of kids, who knows, who are like the moment you prohibit it too much, you yeah. give it too much energy. You have now electrified it, yes. magnetized it, and the kid is drawn to it. Well, this is, this is the theological dimension. This is Paul's insight, that the law that says do not do something generates the transgression, the desire to want to do it. So Paul has this incredible insight when he said uh, everything is permissible. Not everything is beneficial, but everything this is. This is the Apostle Paul, one of the writers of the New Testament. Where does he say this? Um, is that Corinthians? Uh -huh. Everything is everything is permissible. Now, people suddenly go, well, that's license. You let people do whatever they want. But actually, it's the no, the, the refusal to let somebody do something, which, as you say, electrifies the desire to transgress. Um, whereas if you say to someone, which is grace, by the way, the word grace is, is you're accepted as you are, whatever you're doing. Ironically, the very acceptance of grace frees you from the activity that the law binds you to. So can I take one example? A true example, there was a, a, a woman who was seen an analyst because she kept having one-night stands. She was always out at the weekend. She was sleeping around. She felt very guilty about it. What would her parents think? What would her friends think? But she thought to herself, at least I feel guilty because at least the guilt stops me from doing it even more. I feel guilty, therefore it stops me. It puts the brakes on. But over analysis, she started to get rid of the guilt. She started to lower her guilt until she didn't feel guilty about what she was doing, until she accepted who she was and what she did. But ironically, as the guilt diminished, so did the desire to sleep around. What she thought was the obstacle was actually the very thing that was creating the desire. So that, that's kind of grace from a theological perspective. Weirdly, it sounds counterintuitive. You get rid of the, the, the law, you get rid of the guilt. Well, you, then you'll do anything. No, weirdly, when you're accepted, and when you can accept that you're accepted, you become free from those things that would destroy you and would destroy your family and your society. Oh, my word. And that's like your intro. Okay, so <laughs> this episode, <clears throat> theologic. Theological. theological. Making love in a theological way. Second, and then second part, political. Third yep. part, personal. Yep. Okay, and then what's the... So where are you going to take us now with theological? Is there a structure? Are there points? Where are we going to head? Yeah, so um, there's a mystic, French mystic called Marguerite Perret, and she wrote this book called The Mirror of Simple Souls. When did she live? She, I think it was around the 13th century, but uh, you'd have to check Wikipedia for that. Um, 13th century, possibly. Marguerite... Perret. And she wrote this book called The Mirror of Simple Souls. Very beautiful. It's, it's a very strange, winding book where reason is in conversation with love, in conversation with the will. Um, and at one point, reason is saying to love, who are you? What are you? And there's this beautiful line that says, 
I am God, says love. I am God, says love. And I want to start there because our last conversation series was on God. And this is on love. In a sense, they might be exploring the same thing from a different dimension. That the great poets are exploring a dimension of life that the theologians called God. And the theologians, when they explore God at their best, are actually exploring a dimension of life that is expressed in the, in the poets. And Marguerite Perret unifies those two. So actually, this will fit very neatly with the last series. And the things I want to explore with you now will fit very neatly with the notions of God that we looked at uh, in that series. Um, so yeah, so like the, the first thing that's interesting is, you know, we looked at the idea that God is an object. God is a thing out there that we can talk about. And uh, we looked at in the last series other ways of thinking about God and theology. Uh, Paul Tillich once said, atheism is closer to God than theism because when we treat God as an object, atheism denies that object and theism accepts that object. But Paul Tillich says God exists before subject and object. God is not an object. So to deny God as an object is closer to the divine than to accept God as an object. How do you, how, how do you help <laughs> people understand subject and object? Um, so an object is something that you can touch, you can taste, you can outside measure. Outside of you. Outside you of you. You stand over, above, beyond. Yes. You analyze, you observe, you're detached from. Exactly. Like a scientist looks at an object that, you know, you can poke and you can prod. But uh, Gabriel Marcel, this philosopher, he talks about the idea of something as a mystery. A mystery is not something you can poke and prod. It's something that you're immersed in, something that impacts you, something that you do not see, but you see, but that allows you to see. So it, just like light, you don't see light. Light allows you to see. And in the same way, to treat this idea of the divine as an object that you see is to miss the point. It's in a sense a reality that allows us to see the world in a different way. So um, interesting, in the same way, you can say, well, God doesn't exist um, in one sense. So I want to talk about this, like love doesn't exist. As in you can't touch love, you can't taste it, you can't see it, you can't put it into a pot and examine it. But love calls everything into existence. And it's very, very key. So when you're walking around, you see lots of people in the world, but really you don't see them. They're just objects. They are functions, right? You just, they're, you're, they're like a, you're like a cow looking at cars. You know, a cow looks at a car, they <laughs> watch it. Yeah, but, it, but, but nothing's going on. Like, I, this is a good analogy for Ireland, because in Ireland there are a lot of cows. But when, it, when, it, when, it, when you drive past a cow, it looks up and it watches. But there's nothing going on inside, right? And then it goes back to eating, right? That's how we treat people in daily life. We go into a shop, we just, they're, 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 there's like almost this gray, bland existence. But when you love somebody, some individual comes out of that background and you see them in their subjectivity. You see them as an individual. So a friend of mine was once in a train and she forgot her money and she didn't have a ticket. 
And she was very worried about what the guy would say. She was going from Connecticut into New York. And this, this big burly conductor comes up to her and says, ticket please. And she gets very nervous and says, I'm really sorry. I don't have a ticket and I don't have any money. And he looked at her and he probably felt sorry for her and he said, listen love, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. And they got talking and they sat and they talked for about 20 minutes and they, they shared pictures of their children. They had jokes together and he went on. And at the very end when she was getting off the train, she saw the conductor and she said to him, listen, I really appreciate that, I'm really sorry. And he said to her, it's okay, he says, you know what, it's just nice to be seen. Now, he's seen by thousands of people every day, but merely as someone who is part of the system, a one-dimensional man who helps the world run. But he felt that she had seen him as a subject. So love calls people into existence. And this has a theological resonance because at the beginning in Genesis, there is a formless void and God calls out of that void animals and people and beauty. So that's kind of what love does. Love looks at this void of stuff and draws out individuals or causes as having singular and infinite value. Love does not exist. Love calls everything into existence. But of course, <laughs> once you give up the idea of love existing and you simply give yourself to love and you experience it bringing stuff into existence, it feels like the most preeminently existing of all things. You know, that's interesting. Uh, like in college, there was always that couple who was always fighting, mm -hmm. who was spent most of their time discussing their relationship. Like... Working through it, yeah. We're just, and it's as if the the relationship becomes an object, our, you know, my relationship, our relationship, the relationship. Obviously, you have to work at these things, but yeah. you can see it sometimes in a relationship when it's become the object in the middle of the room that yes. then has to be discussed, poked, prodded, analyzed. Exactly, and also when when we purely kind of lust after somebody. We re we reduce them to their physicality, and 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 love and lust are interconnected, but. But when Wait, we say more about that, well, oh, that'll definitely be in number conversation number three. But but in a sense, you <laughs> teaser. know, we, <laughs> that's a teaser. <laughs> yes, so as you'll continue to listen in. Um, but to love someone is to to see them as as well to treat them like an icon, not an idol. To treat someone as an idol is to treat them as their pure objectivity, what you see, or what their personality is like, or whatever. An icon is interesting because an icon is visible. You can touch an icon, you can see it. But an icon draws the gaze beyond the visible into the invisible. When you treat something as an icon, you're drawn into the other beyond objectivity. So for example, uh, in a concentration camp uh, during the Second World War, the guards would have known more about some of the prisoners than their own loved ones. The guards would have had uh, information about height, color of eyes, color of hair, previous occupation. That's a type of knowledge. But a loved one knows that individual in a way that the guards never could. They know them iconically. They are drawn into something that transcends the objective. So an icon is both physical and visible. So that's the part, you know, that's more like lust. You know, there's something that you really enjoy and desirous about the other. But that objectivity also brings you into uh, the, the infinite complexity of the other. 
And, and I think you can only talk about loving someone whenever you've really hit that dimension of the, of the iconic. Okay, keep going. Okay. I well, know you have more. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that was, the, that was the first one, the idea that, you know, let's not talk about love as existing, but love as calling all things into existence. Part one, cows, cows looking at cars. Cows gazing at cars. Cows yeah. gazing at cars. <laughs> Sounds like an indie band. Yeah, that's By it. the way. Let's start an indie band. Kristen, you and me. This is cows gazing at cars. I'll be the dancer because I can't, uh, I can't sing or play instruments. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the second one. Okay. Oh, yeah. Is love is not sublime. Uh, love is what renders somebody or some cause sublime. How do you define sublime? I love that word. By oh way. yeah, it's beautiful, and it's very. It's actually I'm, I'm picking it very precisely because mm -hmm. um, to idealize somebody is to say you are perfect. You know, there's no imperfection in you. To idealize is to think literally the person you're going out with is objectively the most beautiful person in the world. And they are, you know, they would win every beauty contest or whatever. So there's no imperfection. And that's quite powerful. But, but ultimately you're putting somebody on a pedestal that will be oppressive to them and, and destructive in, at the end of the day. But to sublimate somebody is to say you are perfect in your imperfections. You are perfect in all of your fears and anxieties, as well as all the good stuff, to sublimate someone. And this, theologically, this is called incarnation. Incarnation is not some esoteric idea. It's a, it, it can help us understand what love is. Incarnation says that this fragile, fleshly frame can t is the infinite, is the manifesta manifestation of the, of the, of the absolute. And so love, to sublimate, to say something is sublime, is not to idealize something, to say it's perfect, is to say that it is perfect in its imperfection. Um, and, and just as, you know, the Bible theologically make a distinction saying, there's nothing about the incarnation that you can see. You know, there's no, and Kierkegaard talks about this, there's no glint in Christ's eye that will say, oh, this is the absolute. It's in a sense, a mood of relating to so in love, we could completely agree about somebody, completely agree about somebody on every aspect of them. But you love them, say, and I don't. So for you, that all of that stuff that you know takes on this infinite value, this depth and this density that it, that it doesn't for me. So to say that love renders something or someone sublime is to say that, that love takes the grit and grime of the world, takes finitude, takes all of that seriously and invests it with infinite worth. Mm. So uh, you think about like a, like a date, like a speed dating or a dating site mm -hmm. or the way that often it works where you present the best image of yourself. Yeah. And everybody's on their best behavior and we're in a nice restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that actually what you're looking for, what you're searching for is someone who you can love w and, and know all of it. Yes. Yes. And in fact, and the, the thing I am really excited about talking about in the next uh, uh, conversation, but is this idea that actually to love someone is to actually embrace 
the bad side of them and the difficulties and love. So of course you're not going to say that in your speed dating. You're not going to give them a list of all your problems, right? That's, that, you know, this is don't do that. But but when it when it comes to love, uh, this psychoanalyst Lacan said, love is giving someone something you do not have, and they do want it. <laughs> and what he means by that is, you, what what you do not have is your lack. Your brokenness, your 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 unknowing—that's your lack. So you're giving someone what you do not have, which is your weakness, your brokenness, and in a sense, they don't want it because you want to go out with someone who's brilliant and powerful and wonderful. That's what makes you attracted to them. But in love, you give this broken part of yourself to another, and they learn to love it. And two people exchange those things. So yeah, that's kind of like sublimation is whenever whenever all of that's brought into it. So the options are not, I either idealize someone or the person's just a, just like everybody else. Those, that isn't the two options. The third option is this person who is like everybody else is also unlike everybody else. That is the weird, beautiful thing about love, is it kind of doesn't idealize and it doesn't make everything mundane, make everything mundane. It somehow makes the mundane sacred. The profane is sacred in its very profanity. It's interesting that uh, as a parent, you do this intuitively with your kids. Yeah. Your kids are sublime. Yep. That's a good word for it. You, you, This kid who has all their little quirks and habits and frustrations isn't just another kid. This yes. kid is somehow the stars exploding in the universe in yeah. a skin bag, as yeah. the Zen masters say. Yeah. <laughs> like, all of it jammed into this kid who lights me up on the inside like I can't even explain. That's it. So, yeah, Paul Tillich ha had a beautiful way of describing this, and uh, I think it's My Search for Absolutes, this book. Oh, yeah, with the yeah. drawings. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Great. I just it's read that. It's a good one. Beautiful book. Um, but he talks about, uh, it might be the dynamics of faith, actually, but uh, how there's two types of faith for him. He says, Partly faith is this absolute commitment to the world, to the infinite value of the world. You know, in Hebrews, it says faith is uh, being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. So what does that mean? Well, to be sure of what you hope for is you hope that the world, you know, is meaningful, has value, has depth. You might hope that, but intellectually, you know, you don't know. But in your heart, you're sure. So it's not that you believe it in your head. In fact, you could disbelieve it in your head, but your heart just treats the world as infinitely valuable without a shadow of a doubt, being certain of what you do not see. The second bit is you cannot see infinite value and worth. You cannot objectively say why your child is the most beautiful child and the most wonderful child in the world. You can't see that. I haven't met all the childs. Yes, but you're absolutely <laughs> certain of it. Yes. You're so it's faith is this interesting thing which is, absolute radical commitment existentially to the depth and density of the world without epistemological uh, affirmation. Okay, uh, uh, unpack epistemology, epistemological, how we know things. Yes. So slow that down for all of us yeah. mortals. Well, yeah, there's, there's a weird thing I've noticed today where people think faith is a form of belief without substantial evidence. So you have faith that, you know, uh, oh, there'll still be cheese in the fridge. Somebody might have eaten it. 
I don't know, but I have faith that it's going to be there, right? So that <laughs> Did you say cheese in the fridge? Cheese in the fridge. <laughs> Good example. Yeah, I like cheese. Yeah, I eat a lot of cheese sandwiches. I'm not much of a cook. But um, so you have, you have faith because you don't have the evidence. But for the Apostle Paul, it's completely different. Faith has nothing to do with uh, the intellectuals, nothing to do with belief in something that has a lack of evidence. Faith is a commitment despite any, any intellectual knowledge. So in the same way, this brings us to the third element of love. You could say that love is not meaningful. Love is what brings meaning into the world. In other words, if you believe the world is meaningful, that at the end of the universe, we'll all be unified together. There's some arc, there's some story, yeah. there's some trajectory, there's some mega point. There's exactly. this, this, this is headed somewhere. Exactly. And if you've written books on it and you've preached on it and you believe that, you believe it 100%, right? But you do not love. You cannot help but experience the world as meaningless. But alternatively, if you don't believe the universe has an arc, or a meaning, or, or an overarching story. You don't at all. You actually think that's rubbish. But you love. You cannot help but experience the world as meaningful. So love is not about intellectual affirmation, about the meaning of the world. Love is about an existential commitment to meaning in the world. So for Paul Tillich, that's kind of faith. But then he says there's two types of faith. And this is really interesting. He says there's, there's a diabolical form of faith, which is where you raise something up as the ideal, the most beautiful thing in the world uh, that you'll live or die for. Like say like patriotism. We'll take patriotism. You might say my country, right or wrong. And you will live and you'll die for your country. That's a form of faith because you're committing yourself, your entire body and soul to something. But he says it's diabolical because you're raising something that is purely finite to the realm of the infinite. And then Paul Tillich says there's a different type of faith. He says there's a faith, and we'll take patriotism again, where you say, my country, I will live and I will die for my country. And my country stands for the ideals of freedom, of democracy, and of justice. And so if any government stands against those, I will live and I will die to defend those things. And Tillich says that's actually a profound form of faith because you're still giving yourself to something finite, which is your, you know, your country, whatever. You're still giving yourself to something that's physical and is there, but you're giving yourself to the transcendental element, which is freedom, justice, democracy. Those are not things you can touch, taste, or see. Those are values that inspire us. And putting it into the language I used previously, it's the difference between idolatrous faith where you think your child is literally the most beautiful child in the world and would win all the pageants if you put your child into them, right? <laughs> or your child is the most beautiful child in the world um, it, because you, know, you, you enter into the subjectivity of your child in all of her wonder and all of her struggles and all of her beauty and all of her fears. And all of that comes together in a way where you cannot say anything but you are the most beautiful child in the world. Uh, that's, that's, I think faith at its at its best you've used the word existential a couple of times oh yes for people who are not familiar with that term yeah and you used it in re reference to epistemological <laughs> yes how do you break all that down for yeah so in, in a sense you could say um there's a difference between what you believe and how you believe so what you believe is intellectual 
and how you believe is kind of existential, how you interact with the world. So interestingly, within religion, some, some religion, what's important is what you believe. So I might say to somebody, do you believe in God? And they say yes. <clears throat> and then if I think that's a good belief, I, I walk away. But, you know, I don't know how they believe that. There's a saying in Europe, Americans, you've got to love them. Otherwise, they'll bomb you, right? Now, <laughs> I'm, it's not true. It's not true. But what, what you find is, what, what you realize, of course, the joke is, well, you have to love them because otherwise they'll kill you, right? But sometimes theology is like that. You say to someone, do you believe in God? You go, yes. And then I stop. But then maybe if I ask why, they'd say, well, I grew up in a family that were strong believers. And what was that like? Well, I mean, if, if I said I didn't believe in God, they were, they, you know, I was in Kicked trouble. Kicked out of the tribe. Kicked out of the tribe. And, and so what they do is they, they repress the reasons for the belief. So you believe in God, but you believe in God for terrible reasons, destructive reasons. Sometimes reasons you... <clears throat> and then sometimes reasons that the person has no idea. No idea about. If, yeah. you, if you bring a kid into analysis and you say to a child, uh, you know, do you love your daddy? Kid says, I love my daddy. Oh, do you, you know, everything's good with your daddy? Yes. And you're scared of your daddy? No, right? That's fine. But then ask the teddy bear. What does teddy bear think of daddy? Oh, no, teddy bear doesn't like daddy at all. Te teddy bear thinks daddy's an idiot, right? It's not the kid who needs psychoanalysis. It's the teddy bear. The teddy bear has the problem, right? Now, what is that? The teddy bear is expressing the repressed beliefs of the child. The child doesn't even know the reasons why they think what they think, because they've had to repress them because they're so scared of sharing them. So what you have to do is you have to psychoanalyze the teddy bear. In the same way, <laughs> we can have beliefs and not know where they are, but they come out in our actions. Don't ask me what I believe. Ask the, why I overeat, why I cry at night, why I, I'm anxious about going outside. That's telling you the truth. So for, for Kierkegaard, religion is not the what of belief, which is epistemological, what you believe. Christianity is concerned with the how of belief, which is existential. How does your belief humanize you? How, how does it does shape it, you? How does it form you? Yes. How does it order your steps? Yes. How do you engage in the world? How do you interact with it? This is actually my entire vocation, my entire work. And my last book was, was trying to explore Christianity in this existential way rather than purely in this epistemological way. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay, so let's go... Is there more? Wait. Well, those are the three main things. Yes. And, and by the way, the reason why I, I like those is because in the same way I go like, God and love, let's not say they exist. Let's say they insist. And that's the words of John Caputo, a philosopher I really like. But they don't exist. They, they insist. insist. Yes. They, they call us and they call things into existence. Let's not say they're sublime. They render the world sublime. And let's not say that they're meaningful. They rather bring meaning into the world. But of course, the trick is this. When you give yourself over to the, what we call the existential aspect of love, you give yourself over to love, then you discover that love seems to be the most preeminently existing, sublime, yes. and meaningful of all realities. So weirdly, in the very act of giving up the objectivity of love and gauging in the act of love, you strangely experience this sense that you're experiencing something more real than reality itself. Yes, yes, yes. So I'll, this is why for so many people, discussions get so awkward and strange mm -hmm. is because they are discussions that exist in the 
subject-object discussions. Yeah. We're standing around analyzing this. Yeah. When we're discussing the album instead of listening to it. Yes. There's, there's a little anecdote uh, where the Italian soldiers in the First World War were ready to go over the, the top to you know, meet the enemy. And the, uh, the commander says, right lads, over the top, and nobody moves. And then he shouts it really loud. He's got this really deep voice. He bellows it, right lads, over the top. And nobody moves. And he says it a third time, right, it really guttural, this incredible voice, this incredibly strong voice, shouts, lads, over the top. And, you know, these are Italians, right? So they just look at each other, and then they look at the sergeant, and they say, what a wonderful voice he has. What a wonderful voice. Now, that for me is, you know, treating the voice as objective. You're <laughs> studying it, you're looking at it, but you're not hearing the subjective call of the voice. Yeah. Now, that's what Kierkegaard says about, uh, you know, music lovers. He says, you can analyze music and tell you everything about it, treat it as an object, but you don't get it. You're not hearing... You're not letting it touch your soul. You're not letting it breathe within you. So, you know, I think it was Meister Eckhart who basically said, you know, it doesn't matter if, you know, Christ rose from the dead a thousand times. Uh, in reality, if that does not happen in my subjectivity. In other words, uh, you know, there's no Lazareans walking around, but people say Lazarus rose from the dead. You know, there's a sense in which subjective and objective have to intertwine, which is, of course, a theological concept that we explored in the fourth episode, actually, of the last one. Mm -hmm. So um, that's, uh, that they, some, they intertwine in a way that, that touches us, that moves us. And that's why parables are so interesting. A command, if I'm a sergeant in an army and I tell you to close a door, you have to do it, whether you like me or not, whether you're a nice person or not. I make a command and I tell you to do it. But if I say to you, Oh, it's a little bit chilly in here. It's very cold. If you're a nice person, you'll go and close the door. And if you don't care, you won't. The, the one commands and the other uh, is for e those with ears to hear. If you're ready to hear it and you hear what's being said. And parables are like that. Parables are not a command discourse. They don't tell you what to think. They rather invite you to sensitize you to a call, to respond to a call. You know, it's interesting. I'm finishing three or four months of talking about this, what is the Bible book? Oh, yes, yeah. And 95% of the interviews are, well, what is the Bible? Like, yeah. what's the... And my answer is you're invited to be caught up in something. Yes, yeah. You're, you're invited to dance with it. You're invited to hear its invitation and say yes. Yes. You're... What is this story? Is it history? Is it poetry? Is it fact? Is it fiction? Uh, not interesting questions to me. Yeah. You enter into it and see what happens to you. Yes. That's what you do with this. Yeah. Because that's what you do with all great stories. Yeah. And, that, and the, the interesting thing about the biblical text is that, you know, people are still reading it. Like, the, you, the moment you defend a piece of work, like, why should someone read the Odyssey? Why should somebody read Shakespeare? And you start to argue why. I think we're missing the point because the point is people still do. The question is not why should you read it, but why do we read it? Because we do, because there's lots of people who read these works. And then you go, oh, because some people hear within it a call. 
they hear within it something that it calls us to be more human, to to look out for our neighbour, to 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 become, you know, to, to become human is an important thing, because we're all to become human. human is an important thing. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's a good line. Well, dogs don't become dogs, right? There's not such a thing as in dogness, right? We don't say, oh, that dog is very in dogness, right? Dogs are dogs, cats are cats, rocks are rocks. But humans can be inhuman. That's a very interesting thing, you know. That you know, another theological claim is, you know, this idea of Christ being fully God and fully human. And we think, oh, fully God means very distant from us, and fully human means very like us. But what if uh, fully God is like a claim that Christ is as different from us as the farthest star? And to say Christ is fully human is to say Christ is as far from us as the smallest quark. That actually, you know, to become human is an incredible challenge. Again, I, I want to strip this of any metaphysical content, and by that I mean I'm not making claims as to mm -hmm. what mm -hmm. literally... I'm just talking about these terms are, th are theological ways of describing what the poets described. Mm -hmm. And the po what the poets described are similar ways of what the theologians are describing. Um, the, the theologian, you'll know Karl Rahner, he once said... It, what, it was, he was asked, what happens if you meet someone who, say, is a Buddhist, who has a life that reminds you of Christ, that just lives in this beautiful, graceful way. And he said, well, I, I would call him an anonymous Christian. So this is an interesting term, but he got a critique. Someone said to him, well, that's kind of offensive because you're saying that really they're a Christian, but they don't know it. And then Karl Rahner, this is the interesting bit. People don't talk about the second, but they talk about the first bit. His answer to that is fascinating. He says, oh, no, no. He says, if a Buddhist came to me and said to me, you're an anonymous Buddhist. I would go, oh, it's beautiful. Because, see, for me, he says, as a theologian who's immersed my life in that discourse, the word Christian is the best word I've got. It's this beautiful word that is a container of so much beauty. But for a Buddhist, the best word they've got is Buddhism. So what he's saying is, yes, I have my language, and I'm looking at things from this discourse. But I don't want, and I, and I, of course, impose it on the world. What else can I do? Those are the glasses that I wear. But I understand that other people have glasses they're wearing and that they see me through those glasses. And so in some respects, when I see what the best theologians are doing, and there's not many I like, but in the best ones, and I look at what the poets are saying about love, I'm like, oh my goodness. These are, in a sense, they're exploring similar things. They're expressing things. And in fact, the richness is whenever they cross-pollinate. When we can take a word like incarnation and say, let's not keep it just within the Christian camp. Let's take the richness of that idea of the finite being infused with the infinite and, 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 and bring that into dialogue with the best poetry and philosophy on love. And this enriches everybody. Disciplines like, like theology and philosophy and literature are all impoverished when they don't hang out together. Oh, my word. Okay, so we should probably land this plane at some point here. Yep. What, um, to the couple who are struggling with each other, mm. to the person who would love to have a partner, to the person who just found out they've been cheated on, to the person... Ha, um, talk, talk to me about love and the everyday struggles. Yeah. I'll say, I'll say one quick thing that comes to mind. This is from a philosopher, Alain Badiou. He wrote a beautiful... Alain? Alain, Alain Badiou. 
who's a French philosopher. Uh, he wrote a beautiful little book called In Praise of Love. <clears throat> Most of his work is impenetrable, but this is a very, uh, <clears throat> very nice book. But you know, <laughs> he talks about how today we want to protect ourselves from the falling of falling in love. Uh, so uh, Tinder things and dating sites that promise that in a sense, you can have the love without the falling. You can find out someone who, who fits with you, who likes the same things as you. We'll take out all the danger of love, all of the risk of love, all of the horror of love. And he says, kind of the problem is you end up not with love. When you take away the falling, you take away the love. And so for people who are struggling, you know, <laughs> you know who of us have not struggled at one time or another in love? Uh, my greatest you know, struggles in the past were to do with that and maybe in the future. Um, people who are listening to this, who are struggling with all of the things you said, um, first of all, they took the, the step, the courageous step of entering into love where you can live and you can die by that sword, mm -hmm. where you will feel things that you do not want to feel. You will feel more alive than ever and oh, you will feel more suffering than ever. But that, that's kind of, the, that's the courage to be. That's the risk we have to take. And the big challenge for us all, although sometimes we have to take time out, is to not let our past experiences uh, try to, try, do, do not try to insulate ourselves against the pain of love. There is no way to do it. If you try to insulate yourself from all the suffering of love, you will find yourself insulating yourself from love itself. Mm. It's, it is fundamentally risky. It's fundamentally risky. And if you remove the risk, you remove the love. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then I definitely, in the, in the third conversation, if we get to that, you know, I, I really want to land this in, the, in a personal way. Oh, okay. I want to talk about how, how this abstract stuff about existence, the sublime and the meaningful, can really impact us practically. But I think, yes, the lesson out of, out of this is when you have faith, when you have love, you experience the world or an individual or a cause as having infinite value and depth and beauty in their imperfections. And when you open yourself up to that, you inherently open yourself up to risk. And we need to be there for each other whenever we fall. We need to love and care for those people who are struggling because of love. And if we're struggling, you know, we need, we need a community around us because it's painful. It's incredibly painful. People, I mean, I can't believe that we get to work in the mornings, that, we, that people get up and they, they do nine to five and they, they make food for their kids and they, they watch TV and they go out for walks because when you find out the battles that people have fought in the mm -hmm. realm of love, you were surprised that anyone could get up in the morning. You're mm -hmm. surprised that anyone could, could open the door, could take the, the duvet cover from the top of their head. It's incredible. It's incredible. People are fighting great battles and we don't see it because we just see them working in the shop. That person who you're buying a chocolate bar of, they could be fighting incredible battles, experiencing incredible sufferings and love. And of course, you can't ask everybody, <laughs> how are you doing? That would be ridiculous. But we can sensitize ourselves to the other and realize that even if we don't get to know them, they are a person who has probably struggled with love to find it or to move on from someone or to find someone. And that, and that it's, it's helpful for us to remember that. I love your story about the, 
man on the train who says yeah. it's just nice to be seen. It's just nice to be seen. Yeah, that's really, really powerful. So that's a, that's an introduction to love part one. Okay, and thank you, Rob, for doing this. I so Isn't it love fun? that we can have these conversations. Okay, then we'll do another one. Grace and peace, everyone.